All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. We're here for another episode today, and I've got my good friend with me here, Gage Hallbauer. Gage, how are you doing today? What's up? So good. I'm good. excited to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on the podcast, man. So uh, Gage uh, graduated from Baylor this past May. Uh, tell us uh, what you're up to these days. Yeah, I just graduated in May, had the coronavirus semester for my final semester at Baylor. Exciting. Um, I studied uh, biochemistry and medical humanities, and now I'm uh, in med school um, uh, in Houston. Awesome. Yeah, so not too far away, just a few hours down the road. Very good. Um, well, Gajan is joining me today for a very special and exciting episode. We're going to be talking about nonviolence. Um, and this is a conversation Gage and I have had uh, several times uh, going back, what, to last last spring or fall? Is that right? Yeah, about a year now, probably. Yeah, probably so. We uh, were meeting regularly with some other guys, and uh, the conversation came up one day, and, and we started talking about Jesus' teaching about nonviolence. And, uh, you know, I remember Gage in particular was super interested and fascinated about, about this topic, and we kind of kept talking about it a couple more times and then sent you a book, right? That's right. Yeah, and what was that book? I got a, I got a book in the mail uh, this past summer called Fight by Preston Sprinkle. That's right. Yeah, Fight, uh, a case for Christian nonviolence. I think is the is the subtitle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you know I said it was challenging. It was challenging for sure. It it's uh, yes upside down to a lot of our our convictions for sure. And uh, I sent all of our seniors uh, who graduated this uh, this past spring a book that I thought they would resonate with. And uh, I said, all right, Gage needs to read this one. We've had some good talks about non- nonviolence. He'll, he'll enjoy it. And uh, I think you devoured it, uh, you know, maybe not right away, but you, you've read it and you've been wrestling through it. And, uh, and so today I thought you're the perfect person to have this conversation with. Are you excited? Yes. 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 I had to read it because I was in our, in our conversations about nonviolence over the past year. I have been struck by the consistency of the argument for nonviolence. Yeah. My whole life, I feel like I've heard and kind of recited the arguments. Oh, I would never kill anybody. Of course, violence is horrible. But, and then we have these caveats that we had about um, self-defense and about violence for the right cause in, in different scenarios, which I'm sure we'll get into all that. And I admired how the position of nonviolence did not have to make exceptions to thou shalt not kill. Right. So that was the that was the thing that interested me into uh, that was the thing that caught my attention to read the book, um, even though I did, was not on board at the beginning. Sure, sure, and this is this is a process for sure. Uh, and what's I think what you're bringing out right here is that um, this position tries to weed out a lot of the gray. Um, a lot of times, these are muddy waters um, of what about this situation and this hypothetical. And, uh, and Sprinkle wants to make the case, and, and I think I do too, that this is a pretty black and white scenario of, of nonviolence. Um, so let me just recap for a minute uh, what we talked about um, this past Sunday at our college worship gathering. Uh, the, the previous episode on, on, on this podcast is a recording of that, so if you haven't yet checked it out, um, you can go back and listen to that. This is really a supplementary resource to that, uh, that teaching. We're going to um, get to a lot of the questions that we weren't able to, to address in that time together. Um, but just to give you the briefest of recaps about um, what we talked about in our time, uh, we, we talked about how it is, is never okay, I put forward the claim, never okay for a Christian to kill another person. And uh, I acknowledge that this puts me in a minority position, um, not certainly in the world, of course, but, but even among Christians as well. 
Um, and yet, uh, in my mind, the, the teaching of the New Testament is abundantly clear on, on this issue that violence is the way of the world um, and that nonviolence is the way of Jesus. Uh, the text we looked at together was the Sermon on the Mount. That's been our series lately. Um, Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, um, do not resist an evil person or do not use violent means to resist another person, you know. Um, the other cheek is the is the classic example you hear. Turn turn the other cheek if someone slaps you, and uh, most of the time I think that we think, well, that's that's nice advice, Jesus. That's that sounds really kind and really um, idealistic, um, and you know we're willing to to do that in particular scenarios where it's convenient for us, but we don't consistently and systematically apply this to our life. Uh, we, as Gage was saying a minute ago, we we sort of assume uh, surely. Um, you know, that falls apart when someone uses violence towards me. Certainly I'm allowed to like attack them back or if they enter my home or if they invade my country or if they do something evil that just must be stopped. Uh, Surely there are some circumstances in which it must be okay. Um, And so what we're suggesting here today is this outrageous idea that Jesus actually meant what he said, okay, that we are not to use violent means to resist um, another person, period, ever. And, uh, and so in the words of Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are not to overcome evil with evil, um, but to respond in, in good in all times, in all circumstances. And in our world today, this is an incredibly upside down claim. And yet I think that's the point is that Jesus has called us to be different from the world, uh, to be a sample of his future and coming kingdom. And yes, that's going to feel very upside down because it is upside down from the ways of the world, and yet it's the way that Jesus has called us to live. Uh, Gage, what sticks out to you when you when you hear a little bit of that? It sounds like being a Christian means being an alien. Yeah, and a lot more than than we typically think of. So it's interesting how if your life and your um, philosophy kind of matches everyone around you, it could be a reason for pause. And so the common consensus consensus on when violence is okay, I think is in and of itself a reason to, to reconsider it. Are we really walking the narrow path? Are we really being different? Are we, are we being as alien as Jesus calls us to be? Yeah. You know, I find that a lot of the teaching in the church today about being different from the world uh, sometimes just boils down to like the basic idea of be nice, you know? as if other people don't want to be nice. Although there's a lot of people in the world that want nothing to do with Jesus, but they still agree we should be nice, you know? Right. And I think that fails to really set us up to be countercultural. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's what draws me to this idea of violence, is it carves out some space for w- where we can definitively be different and countercultural from the world. Um, and yet, to do that, we're going to have to escape some of these interpretive jukes we typically do uh, to get out of Jesus' teaching. Interpretive jukes, yes. Yeah, Very good. yeah, exactly. Uh, given given the stiff arm, you know. So, uh, well, let's let's jump into some of these questions that uh, that we couldn't get to in the teaching the other day. The first one here uh, is is about violence in the Bible. Okay. So um, one of the things that people first, usually one of the first reactions when they hear the idea that Jesus is calling us to nonviolence and that's, you know, never right or, or God ordained to kill another person. Well, what about all the violence in the Bible? You know, what about the Old Testament? What about Revelation? What about this story? 
Uh, and that's a that's a big and heavy question. I'm not sure they're easy answers. Uh, you really get in the mud here, but um, but I think that there are some ways forward for us to think about. Um, Gage, what what uh, what have you kind of interacted with on in Sprinkle's book that helped you out in this question? Yeah, well, Sprinkle really goes through it um, context specifically, right? So he doesn't his argument for Revelation is not the same as his argument for the Old Testament, and. What he points out, his his general premise is that when Israel is violent in the Old Testament, it's not because they're following what God has asked them to do. That when they when they are faithfully following God, they they pray before their their battles and they don't bring their chariots and they don't have horses, which is what all the other militaristic nations around them had. They they're not prepared, and then God fights their battles for them. And kind of the the pinnacle example is the Red Sea, where the Israelites don't fight the Egyptians, but God delivers them. God does the fighting for them. So if there's any violence in that sort of the Red Sea, it's not the people of God that are doing it. And so he kind of traces the story of Israel and how they start asking God, can't we have a king? And can't we be like the other nations? And it's only then where where kind of in their spiral that they – that they are violent. And while it might look like they're conquering a land that God gave them, they're not doing it in the way that God had asked them to do. And they're, they're, the way that they're doing it is making them look like the world. So in other words, God is, is asking them to, uh, to trust him and to let him fight their battles for them. And sometimes they do a really good job of that. Uh, and then sometimes they, uh, they take matters into their own hands, and that's usually where things get ugly. Is, is, that, is that a fair way to, to say it? Yes, I think I think Sprinkle's asking who is responsible for the safety and the peace of Israel, right? And when the answer to that question is God, they are not violent. They're very different from the rest of the world. And when the answer to that is our king, then they then they then they fall to violence. And they yeah, yeah. it gets it gets very gray, which is which is how you described a, a position that that gives a thumbs up to violence in some cases, it's gray. It, it's playing with gray. And um, yeah, so that, that's how Sprinkle seems to describe the, the descent of Israel into violence. Sure. There's another author, uh, Greg Boyd, who, who writes about this a little bit. And he, he talks about how uh, God's hope was for his people to you know, take over this promised land of Canaan, right? Uh, but to do so in a way that that was ultimately going to be nonviolent, you see a couple of these cryptic references in the Old Testament to like the hornet, uh, and it's this really kind of vague idea that we have to, you know, it's difficult to know what was meant in the original um, to the original audience. Uh, but Boyd suggests is that that this hornet is um, a way that that God intended originally to sort of annoy the uh, the Canaanites out of their region. You know, he was going to drive them out so that out of their own desire, they wanted to leave, you know, and that it wasn't going to take violence to take over the, over, over the, um, uh, over the promised land, that if God's people could trust him um, and they could be faithful to his ways, then he would take care of the people for them. And, um, and yet, uh, ultimately, they, they didn't. And that was, and that's not God's original plan or will, but, um, and so there's there's ultimately some sort of failure for for God's people, like we're saying, to uh, to live out the intentions that He had for them. Um, you know, I, I think I think though uh, there's a few passages though in the Old Testament that seem just very explicit about God is commanding this and God wills this and this is God's desire. You know, 
um, go do this, go kill these people, kill them all, you know, does Sprinkle adjust, uh, address any of those as well? This is something I wish Sprinkle had more time in his book to elaborate on. Yeah. He mentions that there are a lot more arguments. He spends about four chapters on the Old Testament. And I, there were some things I wish he had gotten to. Sure. Um, so maybe there are other good resources people could go to. Yeah. Uh, for a, for well, there, there's a lot to unpack here because it, it, all this is encompassed in questions like, how do we read the Bible? And those are, all, those are also big questions that many books have been written about. You know, they're, right. they're some, intertwined. Something that's something that's been helpful to me is to consider, and this is something you told me earlier, that the clearest revelation that we have of God yep. is when he became man and walked the earth. Yep. And, and so Jesus if Christ. we're finding, right. So if we're finding things and we say, oh, that is completely opposite of what we see in Jesus, it's possible that the problem's in interpretation, or the problem's in understanding of context, but that that we should not let other parts of scriptures co- uh, contradict who we see clearly Jesus is. That's exactly right, and I think a good point is, you know, Jesus is the the perfect and final revelation of what God is like. Uh, you know, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, you know, um, and uh, and so Richard Hayes has uh, writes on this topic a little bit, and I, th- I think, you know, he goes as far to say uh, where there seems like there's a direct conflict in that the Old Testament um, you know, s- supposedly looks like God is commanding and endorsing violence, and then we have Jesus, who seems to be clearly condemning violence. If that's a conflict, then we go with Jesus, you know, because mm. Jesus is ultimately the perfect and final revelation of what God is like. Um, and so, uh, you know, if it, that 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 means in my mind that the Old Testament authors and people are working with something less than the full revelation of who God was, because they didn't have Jesus yet. And so, um, you know, once it's kind of like when you see a movie, you know, and there's and there's a surprise ending like Book of Eli at the end. I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. And all of a sudden you have to go back and you have to watch the whole movie with different eyes, pun intended. Oh, know? like Inception or Tenet in theaters now. Yeah, there, there you go. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it changes the whole way you watch the movie. And so in the same way, um, when Jesus shows up, we finally see what God is like. And we have to go back and reread the whole story uh, from the beginning. That's what the Bible is. It's a story that finds its fulfillment and completion in Jesus, the perfect revelation of who God is, who uh, redeems and restores the creation on behalf of God so we can be reconciled back to our creator. Yeah. Something Sprinkle spends a little bit more time on in terms of Old Testament commands is the law and how the law might... So the law will sometimes seem to endorse violence. And the way Sprinkle talks about this is he compares it to the nations around him. To the, to the nations around Israel, and shows how the law would not make Israel perfect, but it was approaching the original shalom, was, was the way uh, yeah, peace uh, Sprinkle and described boldness, it. Yeah, exactly. Like it was a it was a step in the return to Eden. And so there are there are places in um in Levitical law that Sprinkle mentions where it talks about not treating your favorite wife better than your second favorite wife. Yeah. And Sprinkle says, you know, no one would argue that, that, that um, God is you know, condoning polygamy, right? He's just saying you are living in a culture of polygamy and here's how to do that differently. Right. So instead of, instead of a thumbs up on something God did not intend this creation to do, instead of, instead of an impossible overhaul, it is a, it is a correction on current culture. 
which yeah. this is Sprinkle's argument. And so it's, that's what you have to wrap your head around when you're reading it. It's, it's, it is a, he offers an interpretation, a, a lens through which to, re, to view the Old Testament. And some people talk about that in terms of divine accommodation, the idea that God is meeting us where we're at. And in that, in that culture, polygamy was where they were at. And that's the mess that God is working with, not his ideal will for the world. But he's going to work within right. that to bring bring the people closer to his will, you know. Right, and yeah. and so that that blends some into the way in which Israel is violent sometimes. Yeah. Or um, the way they imagine the, the way in which or assume they that punish. Yeah, the way they imagine or assume that you know, just like all the other nations have a violent God who you know they follow and wants them to go to battle and win wars in His behalf. You know, um, that's that's the. That's the worldview that God steps into and brings them a little bit closer to His, uh, to His will for them. So, yeah. So I I liked I liked uh, how He mentioned polygamy because that, that was that was clear yeah. to me. Okay, well I know that God isn't giving a thumbs up on that. Right. Um. So so therefore He must be commenting on a culture that I don't quite understand. Yeah. It it teaches us this way that we can read Scripture in other places and uh, beyond polygamy as well. Um. The other the other text maybe more briefly that is just Revelation. You know. And uh, I think what's been helpful to me, you know, a lot of people think about Revelation as this super ultra-violent text where God comes uh, with a sword riding on a horse out of his mouth in Revelation 19, and he's here to destroy and pay back and get vengeance for everybody who's, um, you know, uh, rejected him along the way. Um, But, you know, that scene of Jesus riding in on a horse, uh, you know, he's got blood, um, you know, if you re- look really closely, there's, you know, all sorts of hyperlinks to Old Testament texts you know, that are happening here in this passage. And the blood is actually his own, his, his, his own blood. Anytime you see blood in Revelation, it's the blood of Christians who have been killed on, you know, are martyrs because of their faith. Um, and so the sword, uh, the significance of coming out of his mouth, this is linking to earlier in Revelation where um, Jesus has told these seven churches, you will overcome um, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. So uh, the sword coming from Jesus's mouth means that the way that we're going to be victorious is by talking about Jesus and being killed for our faith. And through death, we're actually going to have victory, not by violence and uh, the way of the world. And so right. uh, these images get subverted that they seem violent, but, um, but in reality, it's the slain lamb who accomplishes victory for the whole world. And it turns it all on its head. Yes. So Sprinkle says that Revelation is no different from the story of the gospel and that Jesus destroys sin through being destroyed. He right. says the story of Revelation is conquering through being conquered and that it is just as upside down as everything else Jesus was commanding us to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, he, mentions the, he mentions the sword. He mentions that the, the, the blood is just Christ and it's the martyrs. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's this backwards warfare whereby being defeated, you win. Right. Wow. Uh, and the cross is the cross and resurrection is the template for that. It's the template for right. for all of creation. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next question here. Uh, this is a big one, um, and a lot of people think about this. Sh- shouldn't we divide private and public ethics? So the idea here is is that um, some might say. Well, yeah, Jesus is teaching on turning the other cheek. Like that's that's you know for interpersonal situations. You know, the schoolyard bully uh, comes and pushes you down the slide. Don't go push him. You know, uh, but we have to set all of that aside when we get into issues of politics and government and how to rule the world. So there's this separation that's made between um, the public and uh, the private life. 
Um, yeah. What thoughts do you have on that one? That's a hard one. <laughs> These are all hard. What am I saying? They're all hard. Yeah. You want me to start? Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I think, I think some church history is, is helpful here. Uh, this, this idea, cause we mentioned the other day that uh, for the first 300 years of church history, Christians unanimously thought that it was never okay to kill another person, never okay to, right. for abortion, capital punishment, be in the military, none of it. Um, so right. What, even, even to the Christians who were in the Roman army. Right. Exactly. And, um, and so uh, where that sort of falls apart is with Augustine. Uh, Augustine has this idea that, uh, and we'll get to just war theory in a little bit, but uh, that you can be both a good soldier and a good Christian at the same time. Mm. Um, this gets taken up by Martin Luther uh, in the Reformation, and uh, he has this incredible sort of exegesis of Matthew 5 that just is mind-boggling because it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but so <laughs> Luther says that when Christians went to war, they, quote, struck right and left, and there was no difference between Christians and the heathen. And we say, well, yeah, that's how war works. You know, you, you go and you fight, and everybody does the same thing regardless of their faith. And But uh, Luther then talks about Matthew 5, and, and he says that they did nothing wrong according to this text because, quote, they did it not as Christians, but as obedient members and subjects under obligation to a secular person and authority. So the idea of what Luther is saying here is that when these Christians stepped onto the battlefield, that they somehow took off their Christian identity. Um, that wasn't part of them in that moment in time, and that they were able to sort of function differently under a different order and rule um, as in, in terms of while they were fighting in, uh, in the military, that they were subject to a different authority in, during that time. And right. um, what, what's crazy about this is that we don't think this way with any other sort of, uh, you know, sin that Jesus lies out. For example— Exactly. By, know, yeah, by extension, you are removed from the consequences of any of your actions as long as it's done— if the, if the right, wrong person told you to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So ima imagine, for example, no one would ever say, well, you know, Jesus tells us not to commit adultery. Um, and, you know, I agree that I shouldn't do that in my private life. But if my job requires me to commit adultery, then that's a completely <laughs> different thing. Like, you know, that we wouldn't divorce the public and private because we would say that's ridiculous. There, there's no reason that we should. Right. And, uh, and so in the same way, uh, why do we so easily give a pass to this idea of killing that um, it's okay to do it for the government, but it's not okay to do it in, in your private life as well? Right. It, it sounds similar to the, to the division of the sacred and the secular. Yeah, Where, that's you right. Know, this is this is my this is my life with God, and then this is my life in the world because I got to be realistic. Um, I, I don't think this is just my opinion. I, I there's, there's not the impression I get when I read the teachings of Jesus that this is we're we're supposed to to live them selectively, and uh, when they seem to apply, and only in this section of our life. Yeah. So there's a, a quote from Preston Sprinkle where he says, um, he talks about what the Sermon on the Mount is, and he says that Jesus' sermon is more than a personal ethic. It's not just a way that individuals can be better people. Rather, the sermon is intended to reconfigure God's new community, to mold his people into a visibly different kingdom, that Jesus seeks to sculpt countercultural masterpieces, citizens of the great king who embody a different society and disclose a different God. And uh, when I hear that, I think of um, this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is political. And what I mean by that is it's not just for our private interpersonal lives, um, is that it's calling us to be a different upside-down community in the world in order to meet that goal. And it's going to have to address not just our private lives, but our whole selves. 
um, even the parts of us that engage in the public sphere. Um, yeah. yeah. Sprinkle, sprinkle makes some other references that God wasn't there, that Jesus was not shying away from public statements about politics, uh, just in the way that he referred to himself as the son of God. That was a way that, that the um, Caesar would have referred to himself. And so there were, and, and part of the, um, part of the reason why he was upsetting some people is that he was claiming to be God and in doing so was sounding very similar to uh, the Roman leaders. And so it, Jesus was not living some apolitical, um, you know, this is just for your, your Sunday school life and not for your, not for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And so I think a lot of us think, you know, um, hey, if I was secretary of defense or something like that for the United States of America, then my job would require me to be okay with violence. And I would just have to sort of agree that there's two sides of my life and they're going to be in conflict, but that's just the way the world is. Uh, Sprinkle actually says, even if you are the secretary of defense, if Jesus is your king, then then your king says you shouldn't retaliate, uh, you shouldn't hate your enemy, you shouldn't confront evil with violence, and that is binding for your whole life, that there's not this division. And uh, maybe that's unsettling for us because it might imply that there are certain jobs or roles that we can't hold or take as as followers of Jesus, or at least can't do them in the same way, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or people that we know and love who we, who are believers. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I think unsettling is a great way to describe it because yeah. this is not the way that we live. Yeah. This is not the way that we think. And especially if we've had a paradigm where, um, you know, we've really focused on getting Christians in positions of power, then all of a sudden to say that there are certain positions that maybe we can't really function in the way they were designed to function, that, that can be a little unsettling. Um, right. It's something we've got to work through. It, it, feels, it feels like it, it does not make sense. It does not sound effective. It sounds totally alien. And that's the whole point. And that's the whole point. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the next question here is about just war theory. And let me start with this again, because this gets back to Augustine, who we mentioned a few moments ago. And this is where a lot of uh, people um, start to think, well, wait, there's this whole tradition called just war theory. It was created by Augustine around the year 400, where he basically said certain wars are can be just in certain circumstances. And he kind of laid out these criteria and they were developed by Aquinas much later. And those uh, those criteria are things like it's got to be a just cause it's got to be ordered by a legitimate ruler. Um, it's got to have uh, a, a just intention. It has to be a reasonable chance of success. It has to be the last resort. Um, the re- the means of retaliation have to be, pre- be proportionate. Um, you know, non-combatants must have immunity. Um, you know, if all these criteria are met, then the war can be just. Um, well, go ahead. Well, I just think people would be surprised by Sprinkle's response to just war theory. Yeah, because I'm it? sure people will think, oh. Sprinkles say that you know that sounds horrible. You know, even there's no such thing as a just war. But Sprinkle actually likes just war theory. He says that's a great idea. Now show me a war that's ever met met the criteria. Right. He he thinks that just war theory is actually a great nonviolent argument. Yep. And then he talks about a lot of wars in recent history where where the goal was just war. There, we've had presidents who talk about that being the intention. And there's always civilians that get hurt, and um, and the, other criteria the, too that are getting that are getting uh, moved aside here. Yeah, whether it's proportionate oh yeah, yeah. or just just in, 
intentions being pure and how do we measure what um, is a just cause there's all sorts of questions exactly it, it you are relying on your your own ability to uh, to know justice to know goodness to know every every detail of the equation and um, I think a lot of that's beyond us uh, sprinkle says it's great in theory but but it hasn't happened yet yeah. That's right. And, and so, uh, you know, Sprinkle also says that most advocates of just war theory um, believe that war, all war is evil. Um, they just think that it is and sometimes regrettably necessary, you know. And I think that's important to hear because uh, a lot of people today who want to drop just war theory, I don't think would say all war is evil. They would say war is, is good, you know, and, and, it achieve, and, and so there's a certain lament that really ought to come even if just right. worry is, is theory is invoked. And one of the things I appreciated that he did is he, he said, um, you know, we owe this just war theory to tradition and tradition has a place in our life as Christians. It really does. Um, but, uh, you know, one of my professors used to say tradition gets a, a vote, but not a veto, right? Uh, we have to weigh it, but ultimately the Bible is what we come back to. Uh, he wants to say that, uh, these principles, these criteria—I mean, they—they they help. They help show us that that war is often not just, but they themselves are not in the Bible, uh, right? And he sort of, you know, does a, a teaser of what would a biblical theory of war look like, um, and he sort of teases out that soldiers would have would be commanded to love their enemies, <laughs> and that right. they would have to forgive when wronged, and they would never be able to pay back evil for evil, uh, and they should never act in hatred or vengeance. That—that's right. a biblical theory of war. And it is completely upside down from certainly even the way that the most just wars today are handled. Yeah, right. And so Sprinkle talks about um, both early Christians and even some soldiers who are mentioned in the Bible who who come to know Christ. And none of the none of the um, soldiers in the Bible who uh, come to know Jesus are are recorded as going on and continuing in their service and their violence. Um, and then, and then, even in the um, the early Christian period before Constantinople and, and you know legal Christianity, violence was not endorsed as a means of uh, defending yourself against persecution or um, or fighting for the state, which a, a lot of Christians identified as Roman citizens. Um, so, and there was this there was this unity in the early church. They they could, I, we were just talking about this the other day. They they couldn't agree on who God the Father was. They had no Trinitarian doctrine, but they did know this that that Jesus called us to live differently um, in a violent world. That's right. Yeah, um, and you know sometimes the the I think where our minds go is well, what are we, what are we supposed to do? Were we just supposed to let the world fall apart? You know. Uh, there was a in the second century. There was a um, a Christian critic named uh, Kelsus, and he wrote to Origen, one of the church fathers, and he wrote uh, and he said, "If everything, if everyone did what you did, then the whole empire would collapse, you know, because we would all be nonviolent." So he was this, this was his argument, and I think a lot of people think that today too. Like, look, this is no way to keep order in the world. Like everything would collapse. And Origen's response was was really interesting. Um, he said, "No, we are fighting for Rome." Uh, but we're just not doing it with the same weapons of warfare as you, that we're using spiritual weapons. We're, we're using prayer. We're using fasting. We're using acts of piety. Um, there's this uh, verse in 2 Corinthians 10 about we do not fight with the weapons of the world. And so Origen truly believed that by staying home and praying, he was having just as much impact on the violence in the world than the soldiers who got out with their sword. 
And right. Um, do we do we have do we have faith like that? Right. I don't, I don't know. Do we? And, and, and you, you know, know? And, and what he was praying for, by the way, was not just that one side would you know defeat the other one. He was praying against the the powers of violence in the world that stirred up these wars. He's praying against the root of it that God would bring peace and shalom uh, to the world. And so Origen uh, actually believed that there was such thing as a just war, um, but he still prohibited Christians from participating it, even though uh, such a thing would be possible in his mind. I think this, um, it necessitates a clash with uh, some aspects of patriotism, which has been a struggle for me. Yeah. Because I have always believed um, in the uh, the virtue of the American experiment and the the um, the courage it takes to serve in the military, to serve in the police, places that sometimes demand violence. And my gut reaction is to take an, an unnuanced celebration of military service and police service. And this, this book, if anything, has helped me slow way down and think, think about um, you know, what, what jobs like that might require somebody to do. And, and what does it look like to be a faithful Christian in those positions? Yeah. Yeah, so which could be the next question. What is yeah? What is his answer then? So, I mean, can Christians the things that are kind of we're implying here that are coming to the surface? Can Christians be in the military? Can they be you know police officers? You know things like that. What, how does he respond to that? Yeah, Sprinkle says yes, but they can't kill people. Yeah, he said just like the Secretary of Defense, you can be a Christian, but he can't kill people. He can't be. He can't use violence. Um, which something we we uh, could have done here at the beginning is Sprinkle's definition of violence, um, which he says is a physical act that is intended to destroy or injure a victim by means that overpower the victim's consent. And this is important because there are um, there are some things where you might cause pain to a person, you know, in you know medically or or otherwise um, that benefits someone where they're not a victim or it's with their consent. Um, that wasn't super relevant to what we were talking about, but um, no, but I think it's, I think it's all it, the lines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would encourage you to read the book so you can, you can catch, it's called fight by Preston Sprinkle. Um, yeah. you can see the entirety of his argument. Um, it's more than we can, we can discuss in, in such a short conversation. Yeah. And, and so this, this, going back to this idea a minute ago of you can be in the military, you can be a cop, you just can't kill someone. People, you know, might think, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. How is that possible? Uh, but there are examples, and uh, actually, we'll put a link in the show notes here to uh, a different podcast um, done by a cop who, uh, you know, has now has since been promoted to police chief uh, in in the last year, um, and he has never fired his his weapon. Uh, he's committed to never kill another person, and he is an uh, incredibly influential and successful police officer. These things are possible. Yeah. Um, yet, if that sounds totally crazy and alien, that's the point. Yes. There you that's go. We the have point. To... You know what I mean? Like, this is not normal. This it's, it might not even be effective policing. Right. You know, it sounds like he's successful, but that, the, 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 but the point of the Sermon first. on the Mount, exactly. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not effectiveness, but this is how you faithfully follow me. And oftentimes it will lead to effectiveness, but that's not the point. Yeah. Right, and uh, I think when it comes to the military, you know, we we can really be genuinely. This is, I think, what Sprinkle shows us: be genuinely thankful and admire um, the, the people who have made sacrifices. There are a lot of virtues in the military that are worth celebrating about. Um, Absolutely, you know, about sacrifice and um, courage, diligence. And courage, yeah. Thank, yeah. Very good. And, and yet, we we can live in that tension of not 
worshiping or celebrating violence, but yet still admiring and celebrating those virtues. And yes. uh, I think that's it's the nuanced. tension I'm, I'm leaning, I'm leaning into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, with uh, diverse or the divisive politics, nuance is not celebrated, right? right? You need to blindly accept or blindly hate or, you know, blindly follow. Right. Um, yeah. And you're for us or you're against us. And in a world, exactly. in a world right now where it's like, you're either for the police or you're against the police or, right. or whatever, like, you know, I think we have to reject the options and say, God has called us to be an alien people, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just like, just like Jesus did when they threw the adulterer. Yeah. Front, which I'm quoting your sermon, where Jesus picks the third option. Yeah. Right. They say, should we stone her right now because she was caught in adultery? Or are you just gonna let her go in your in your grace and have no justice? And Jesus writes in the sand instead. He says, You are without sin, throw the first stone. Yeah. And they they end up leaving. He asks the woman, Where are your accusers? She says, They're gone. He says, Then I don't accuse you either. And so he does which which option does he pick? Does he choose to stone her? Or does he does he choose to let her go and keep sinning? Right. He doesn't either. And it's similar with the woman at the well. It, 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 there's this calling to go and be different, right? Instead of destroying or saying you're okay with sin, there's a there's a middle option. And that I love that you brought up this uh, this story of the woman the woman caught in adultery because all these people leave their stones and they walk away, and Jesus, the one who hasn't committed a sin, stands there. And he has the right to throw the stone according to the to the uh, criteria he just set down. And what does Jesus do? He acts nonviolently, and he he uh, puts <laughs> the stone down and he walks away. And so, uh, great example. Yeah. So uh, we 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 kind of touched on politics a little bit. Um, I, um, and earlier I, I mentioned how I I've always struggled with this this thought pattern I've had where I said, of course, nonviolence is horrible, except. And, and I'll go through some of the examples. We say, you know, non nonviolent nonviolence is terrible. I would never kill anybody. But if someone's, you know, destroying your property, infringing on your property, trespassing, surely you can shoot someone if they step on your property, right? And Jesus says in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, if they take your tunic, which is the cheap part of your property, to offer them your cloak with it, the expensive, the expensive thing that you would protect. And we say, of course, violence is horrible. I, I would never kill anybody. That's terrible. But if someone were infringing on my freedom, I mean, then you could shoot somebody, right? If someone were trying to to force you to do something or enslave you. And Jesus uh, talks about how Romans would, would treat um, the Jews. Uh, he refers to, to like a common mistreatment where he says, if they force you to go one mile, go two miles with them. So Jesus, Jesus specifically addresses infringements on freedom and how violence is not the response to that. And then the most, the most intimate one, what if they're attacking me personally? What if they're attacking me personally? What if they're hitting me? What if they intend to kill me? And Jesus says, they strike your cheek, you offer the other one. So the, the three most common counters I hear to blanket nonviolence, I think Jesus addresses head on. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet we 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 claim to say we want to follow Jesus and take him at his word, you know. And yet we tend to once again do all sorts of jukes. What did I say earlier? What was the phrase? The interpretive jukes? That wasn't it. Yeah, it was something like that. Something like that. Yeah, we want to do that, whatever it was. (laughs) Next question, uh, isn't self-defense a God-given right? Let's go through this one quicker here. This is a a question I hear is, uh, you know, um, this idea that like, well, surely God has given us... uh, 
the right to defend ourselves, right? Uh, that's Self-defense is a God-given right. Uh, right. Based on Matthew 5, what you're just saying, I don't know where that's coming from. Uh, <laughs> it actually sounds like we don't have that right at all, you know? That, right. Uh, yeah, what do you think? Well, I mean, Jesus says it in Matthew 5, and then he does it right through the crucifixion. That's right. Where he is, he is getting beaten up, and they are clearly intending to take his life and they, you know, they end up doing so. And, yeah. and through that whole process, he doesn't respond violently. In fact, he's praying for the ones who are beating him at, you know, yeah. through it all. Father, and, forgive them for they do not what they're doing. Right. Right. Can you imagine if that was your response to someone being physically violent towards you or, or even if it's not physically violent, but, but aggressive aggression, assertiveness intended to push you down. Can you imagine that being your response? Just complete grace, asking God to, to give you a spirit of forgive, forgiveness, just like Jesus. I mean, if the goal is to live in a way that introduces other people to Jesus, I, I can think of few more effective ways no, to do that. Maybe none, right? That is when Jesus next teaches on the Sermon on the Mount on love your enemies. He's th That's the embodiment of that right there, right? Yeah. And uh, I think what this brings us to is this just idea that this we have to wrap our heads around is that we have certain rights as Americans that we don't have as Christians, right? Right. And so you yes, mentioned a minute a ago, point. like, you know, if someone breaks into your house, you know, as an American, you may have a right to shoot them. You know, in court, you're going to you're gonna be innocent. You get to walk away. Yes. Uh, but Jesus doesn't give you that right just because, you know, the Constitution does. And that was, uh, that was so helpful to me because— because, um, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about cases of self-defense. Um, and, you know, you know, if I'm an, if I am, because this book is convincing me, I'm, I am, I have agreed with, with Sprinkle a lot more than I expected to. He, he had some convincing arguments in, in places that I struggled with. But um, if I agree that nonviolence is not morally correct, even in cases of self-defense, well, does that mean that I think that every person who's, you know, not thrown in jail in, in cases of self-defense are uh, not being punished correctly. And separating what is legal from what is moral has been super helpful for me. I don't know if this is just a practical, practical tip for thinking in America, but I can now look at police violence or at um, violence anywhere else in the country and say, killing people is never okay. Killing yeah. people is never okay. Now, if you want to talk about legally who is protected, who is technically in self-defense, who who you know legally should go to jail, that's an interesting puzzle. I, you know, and I, I, I will. Uh, it's complicated. I will, yeah. Right. I'll, I'll indulge you in the puzzle. Let's think about this legally, given the legal rules, which we know are not God's laws, right? Um, I'll, I'll consider the puzzle, but it has been so freeing to not um, to be able to say, you know, that that might be considered legal in America, but it doesn't mean that it's morally good. And what I'm hearing you say is that the church is always called to be on the side of life because God is always on the side of life. Is that this idea that, you know, Jesus dies for our sins and as he's being beaten and hung on a cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them, um, that that's the posture and heart that Jesus ultimately wants us to have as well. Um, and that we, you know, we can't just say, thanks, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Now I get to go kill my enemies. We, you know, we're actually called to to be transformed and changed until we're like him, and until that's our heart and posture and attitude as well. So, yeah. Okay. Next question: uh, Does doesn't the ends uh, sometimes justify the means? Right. 
that's what we're really getting at here is uh, all of the arguments that sort of fall back on, you know, killing being okay in certain areas as well. You know, the end justifies the means, you know, it's not ideal, but we got to do what we got to do. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. What, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the three examples I gave earlier that I think Jesus specifically addresses violation of property, violation of freedom, violation of self, um, and how violence is not the answer to that. All three of those have great ends, right? The promotion of freedom, the promotion of health, and um, the, the, the promotion of well-being in general. Those are, those are excellent ends, right? And Jesus says those are not worth being violent over. Even, I mean, what, what would be a better end than extending the life of Christ, right? right? That, that would seem to be the best end you could have. Don't kill Jesus. <laughs> yeah. um, Jesus does not see that um, as worth committing violence for. And so you wow. would have to convince yourself that, that your case, that whatever you're arguing for, um, is more important and more good than extending the life of Christ, right? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Um, you know, I, I like a quote here from Martin Luther King Jr. He, he said, Peace is not merely a distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. Um, and so he wanted to talk about peace as both the means and the end, you know, and that Jesus is the one that calls us into that way. Uh, so, you know, we, we love this verse, John six fourteen that uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, that word way, sometimes we just stop at, oh, Jesus shows us the way to go to heaven. That's true. Uh, but the idea that Jesus is showing us the way to live and that that way that he's showing us to live is nonviolently, is, is through peace. Um, right. But as the means by which we live to arrive at his also peaceful end and kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I've found so much freedom in the consistency. Yeah. And that I don't, I don't have to say, well, you know, um, the death penalty is okay, but you know, killing people is wrong and wrapping my brain around how, how to meld those two together. Um, it is, it has been freeing, it has been freeing not to, you you can say some people deserve it, but I I think a uh, cursory reflection on your own life and looking through scripture about the depravity of sin that's in all of our hearts, you'll, you'll be convinced that there's, there's not much difference between sinners. Yeah. And this sets up an interesting thing about faithfulness versus effectiveness. You know, we talked, use that language a little bit earlier, uh, but it's the idea that God has, has called us to be faithful and, and we're all concerned about like, well, Jesus's way doesn't work. Like that doesn't sound like it's going to get the results that I, that I think I should get. And, um, you know, Stanley Hauerwas in his book, Resident Aliens, talks about how we have to trust that God gave us the rules that will bring about his good results, okay? Um, so too often we, we say, you know, God uh, just doesn't seem like nonviolence is going to get the job done. We must use violence. But, you know, this is a lack of faith in God's right. methods that God gave us the rules that will bring about his good results. Uh, so don't focus on the effectiveness. Just focus on being faithful. God's done the calculus already. Uh, trust that he knows what he's saying and he knows what he's doing. And sometimes we will lose, but even in losing, we will win. And so, right. um, and so, you know, right. uh, sometimes we will get the earthly result that we're looking for much to everyone's surprise. Um, but even when we don't and we lose, uh, there's still final victory. And so that's why we have to focus on being faithful, uh, before, uh, focusing on being effective. Yeah. And the, the lack of effectiveness is what bothered the Israelites too, you know, we, yeah. we want a military king. We want the chariots. We want the armies. We, yeah. want, we want people who just fight wars. They're full-time soldiers. Yeah. Because we think that, that, that will help us. And, and, what, uh, and Sprinkle describes that as, as uh, shifting their reliance from God for their protection 
um, and, and shifting it to uh, themselves. Well, it's, it's just like, it's just like the sin in, in the garden of Eden, right? It's making ourselves God. Right. Yeah. That's right. I know the best way to do things. I know the rules that should go by God. You tried that whole turn the other two thing was weird. We put it up for with it for a while, but now we know the better way. And you know, right. Yeah, that's right. It's letting God be God. Well, this final question I think is maybe the hardest one, and it's this idea of shouldn't we protect the vulnerable, right? Maybe that's what's right. been on the background of some of uh, our minds as we've had this conversation is, well, what about the scenarios where there's people you love, maybe they're more vulnerable than you are, and um, what do we do if you know there's uh, an attack that puts them at harm? Um, are we supposed to just stand by and watch them you know, suffer? Um, you know, I think one thing that's helpful has been to, to – see not just this dichotomy of like either you kill them or you do nothing that there is often a creative third way to function you know um that uh that can bring about a different result uh but yeah what what are some thoughts you have about this this last question this has this was my question reading the book that it was and sprinkle kind of holds out to the end to answer it it's the intruder at the door scenario right jesus asked me to to turn my cheek when I'm struck, but he doesn't ask me to turn my kid's cheek, you know, or my future wife's cheek, or the kid who's being bullied at school's cheek, right? I'm not supposed to, surely if if they're being attacked, I'm not supposed to let them be attacked again. That that sounds like weakness. That sounds like that sounds like uh, you know the fearful way out. And so he describes the classic intruder at the door. What do you do? And one of his arguments is similar to what you were talking about, the third solution, right? He said, we like to paint this as it's either kill or let them do harm and, you know, and kill your family. Um, and he says it, it, it is often not that crystal clear, right? Do you know that they're coming to kill your family or are they coming to take your TV, right? And sh should we shoot someone for stealing our TV? Well, I don't think that that would... Uh, follow what, what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. So he talks about the third solution. And then I appreciate how he concedes here. He says, let's just imagine that somehow you are absolutely positive that they intend to harm or destroy your children, your wife, your husband, and whatever. And let's pause real, right, real quick just to say the likelihood of this happening to us is extremely, extremely low, right? Right. Sprinkles, Sprinkles not sure if it can happen. Yeah. You know, he... He's less sure of it than he is that a just war can't happen. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He, he's he he is he is unsure of of whether you would actually be so certain that they're here to to um, destroy but, your family. But we'll imagine it does. We'll imagine it. Well, does. Let's just imagine that if they're here to strike your cheek, you're still on the hook for the Sermon on the Mount, right? Right. <laughs> it's it is only that they are here to to um, uh, in violence against other people. So he says that it is possible that you will come down to the unfortunate decision between loving your neighbor, your family, the bullied, loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. And that if, it, if your choice is actually just those two options, you will have to make a horrible decision of, of choosing to follow one of those and not to follow the other, right? You will either have to not defend your neighbor or you'll have to not defend your enemy. And he says, whatever you choose, that you would need to do so with, with the recognition that this is not God's plan, um, that this is not good, that even if it's legal, and I, I put that in air quotes, even if it's legal, doesn't mean that it's morally good or morally acceptable. 
Um, so he, he paints it as a picking between two evils. He said your response, if you, if you chose to, to end the life of the intruder, you would attend their funeral and you would find their family. And he mentions setting up a college fund for the, the children that will grow up without a, a father now. Or, I, Well, I guess we're assuming the intruder is a guy, but, but you know what I mean? Like it's this, it's this, this remorse mournful response. It's yeah. not, it's not a fist pump. I just defended my family. I'm the greatest. I exercise my rights. This is great. Even though, even though it took courage and it, you had the right to do it, you know, the, the, the legal right to do it. Um, he's, he, he says we need to recognize what what violence is and what and how Jesus asked us to live in this world. And uh, yeah, he says there's no good answer. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I think it's important to say, like, if it's like, aha, we finally come to our muddy gray moment, I think we can live in that a little bit. But it's an acknowledgement that uh, this very specific particular scenario that does not happen to 99.9% of humans who walk on this earth, you know what I mean? And even then... Uh, when you think it might be happening, it's probably not happening because this is a last resort and there's probably other creative ways out. You know what I mean? Okay, that's, yeah. that's what I wanted to bring up next. So he doesn't say to just go for the gun instead of tackling, apprehending, calling the police, resisting. And he, he um, you know, this kind of goes back to his original definition of violence with the intent to harm. This is something you and I have talked a little bit about, Ryan, where you can actually be keeping someone from doing um horrible evil that that will that will greatly affect their life right so for the good of the intruder you tackle them and prevent them from from doing what they would have to your family or to you because they're about to destroy their life they're going to do exactly something that's going to you know lock them up for forever and have horrible consequences for them you're you're preventing them from the ripple effects you know that are that are going to come from this moment of of a poor choice right yeah. Right. So it is, it is an, you are, you are, um, it's almost like an act of mercy. You're, you're yeah. trying to spare, you're trying to spare the intruder from horrible consequences that you know would be coming their way. The, um, way, the way I think I, about this on a personal level is, you know, um, you know, God forbid anyone would ever come into my home and do something like this. If they do, I have a baseball bat under my bed and I keep it there. I hope I never have to use it. Um, and if I did have to use it, it would be a last resort. And if I did swing it, uh, I would I would not swing it at a head. I would swing it at <laughs> at you know in order to injure but not kill. It would be my hope. Right. And uh, and I would probably literally pray as I swung the bat, Lord, don't kill this person. You know, um, yeah. let let this be a means that preserves their life and leads to ultimately towards their reconciliation with you, and with the person that you've created them to be. And, you know, heaven forbid, if that did somehow end their life, um, man, I would be mournful and lament and try to figure out how I can make some good, you know, out of this evil that has come into the world. And uh, I try right. to figure out what is my responsibility in this person's life, how, how I have now disrupted their family and their reality and their circles. Uh, right. You wouldn't be fist pumping and, and celebrating. And, yeah, not and celebrating. I, I, remember, I remember hearing you say this and... Um, I, I almost thought it sounded a, a little too good to be true, right? There's no way a real person would act like this. And I think, I'm, and, and we, we did, t we talked about this. This has to be your, your second nature response, yeah. right? So through conversations like this, through reading books like Fight by Sprinkle, and by asking God to mold your heart and shape your desires after his, we want to get to the point 
to the to the point where when someone is exceedingly rude to you, your first response is blessing. It's a reflex. Right? Yeah. Or when someone is invading your house, you know, just in, in the same way, your first response is blessing, right? It, it is seeking the good of your enemy. Yeah. I had a student, there's another student I've been talking with about, quite a bit about this. And she, um, she told me recently that she had a dream um, about in, in which someone intruded into her, her, her house in the dream and that her first thought in her dream was what is a creative third way nonviolent solution that I could use to get out of this situation in her dream. That's incredible. And to me, that just communicated that this had seeped, like you said, into her imagination, into her reflexes. Um, and I think that the more we talk about these things, the more it can realistically do the same for us going forward. It's not our natural nature, um, but God is renewing our heart. And that's the whole point of, of this is that God can make us new so that we um, start to react and behave um, and relate like Jesus. So, yeah, if, if you think this is emotionally impossible, that you just couldn't possibly have the self control when you're so afraid and maybe so angry, um, then I think we should ask God for self control. And um, we should realize that it's like that in all of, in all of our life. We we will sometimes feel emotionally compelled to do things that Jesus hasn't asked us to do. Yeah. And so as you've been saying all along, Gage, if this sounds crazy, if it sounds alien, then that's the point, you know, um, that God has, is making, is bringing an upside down kingdom to our world and he's calling us to live an upside down way of life. And so, yes, it is going to be very strange, very alien, um, but that's exactly um, the whole point of it all. We've, we've kind of said the word alien a lot, foreign. This book has, has helped me think about my eternal citizenship. And so I encourage you to read it, even if it doesn't convince you of all of its points, because it it has been an excellent reminder to me of how of how different we are to live and how if this doesn't feel right, if it doesn't work, if it's not effective, it's almost more evidence that our our true citizenship is yet to come, right? We're we are yearning for a day where nonviolence works. And it's, it's the right thing to do. And, and everyone agrees, you know, so if this, if you feel out of place, I think that is evidence that you were designed for someplace else. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, Gage. Well, uh, thanks for joining in to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory. This has been a great conversation about nonviolence today. Uh, that book that we keep referencing is Fight by Preston Sprinkle. I encourage you to go check it out. And also to share this episode with a friend, give us a review. Uh, we'll be back soon with another conversation. Until next time. Thanks, Ryan. There's no way my voice sounds as good as yours. <laughs> the magic mic. The magic, the magic mic. mic. <laughs>